If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. The scripture lesson this morning comes from Israel's greatest prophet, Isaiah, the 40th chapter, several verses that ended up in Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and especially courage for interpretation. Donald Trump, President of the United States of America, is a racist. A racist. There's no other way I could have started this sermon on the weekend celebrating the 50th anniversary of the birth of Martin Luther King Jr., the death of Martin Luther King Jr. And if you think I need to be forgiven for saying this from the pulpit, I accept your forgiveness. But if you think I could forgive myself for not saying it, you are mistaken. I think that would be a sin. I hope and pray that every minister of the gospel will stand in his or her pulpit this morning and say it, because it does not matter what your party affiliation is, what kind of church you attend, or whether you voted for Trump or were traumatized by his election. It only matters now, in honor of Dr. King, that we join the chorus of voices from left, right, and center who love this country and don't want to see its reputation destroyed, its great institutions diminished, and its people driven further apart, that preachers of all people not remain silent, along with spineless politicians, and continue to make excuses for what is inexcusable, crude, shameful, and profoundly un-American. Now that that is off my chest, you will be glad to know that the rest of the sermon will shift its focus away from a president whose toga is showing and toward Dr. King, who knew that racism is America's original sin, and who also knew that the greatest enemy of racial reconciliation was not the KKK, it was what he called the white moderate. Do you know any white moderates? 
you are looking at one. Oh, no, Robin, no, say it isn't so. You're not a white moderate, you're a proud liberal. Ask anyone. Your books, your columns, your sermons, you voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries, come on. You're not a white moderate, Robin, really? What if I told you that not only am I in my day-to-day -day life more a white moderate than a revolutionary, but that at this moment, I'm looking out at a whole room full of white moderates. No, no, not Mayflower. No, no, we just voted to become a sanctuary church. Yes, we did, and we should have. But did you know we lost members over it? They thought we were asking people to break the law, and for them this was the last straw. But Dr. King said if a law is immoral, you should break it. Lori and I proudly preach the social gospel here, and you cheer our commitment to gay rights, women's rights, a place for everyone at the table, but we've noticed that when we bring up the oil and gas industry, the response is, hmm, muted at best, sometimes hostile. It is not easy to hear criticism of an industry that has enriched so many of us even if failure to pay its fair share of taxes has made Oklahoma a failed state. Not to mention its undeniable and continuing contribution to global climate change and earthquakes. Martin Luther King Jr. was not assassinated during his civil rights period, but some years later after he began to attack the way wealth is distributed in this country. Everyone except the most ardent racist knows that the segregation in the Jim Crow South was evil. But increasingly, King had started talking to white moderates about their participation in an economic system that denied dignity to millions, while enriching the already rich at the expense of the already poor. He should see us now. King preached a remarkable sermon at Riverside Church in New York City a year before he was assassinated, and it focused on economic injustice, as well as being a protest to the Vietnam War, where black soldiers serving in Vietnam would die defending freedoms they would not enjoy when they returned home. The liberal New York Times ran an editorial the next morning under the headline entitled, Dr. King's Mistake. It basically said he should stick to something he knows about, namely civil rights, and I guess leave Wall Street to figure out how the economy works. In fact, if King were alive today, he would be turning 89. Perhaps he would be walking with a cane, his hair white as snow, but I doubt that he would spend much time on Trump. He would simply say, what did you expect? He has been a racist his whole life, and so has America. And there is great political power in releasing the racism that is in all of us, especially when our white world seems to be slipping away from us. But that is not what I think King would be talking about if he were alive today. I think he would still be focused on us white moderates who remain silent because they benefit from the system and do not want to rock the boat. 
What should be required reading in all our schools is King's letter from Birmingham jail. I assign it to all my students who take a course from me called Peace and Nonviolence because although written in 1963, it is still urgently relevant. Jailed for parading without a permit in Birmingham, King was handed a newspaper by his African-American jailer containing an ad taken out by the local newspaper, in the local newspaper, by eight prominent religious leaders under the title, Call for Unity. Call for Unity, who could be against that? It attacked the nonviolent marches that King had organized as, quote, unwise and untimely. You may have noticed that people who resist change always think that movements organized to change things that need to be changed are untimely and unwise. Today, for example, there's never a good time to discuss race relations or gun control for that matter because we're always grieving the latest tragedy so we're always told to wait lest we politicize the moment but you see the delay itself is politics. Writing in what one scholar called a controlled fury, King explained why time is morally neutral with regard to injustice, and that justice delayed is justice denied. White, moderate clergy always want to have it both ways, King said, appearing to be concerned about law and order while also protecting their restless and conflicted congregations. Just as in the Black Lives Matter movement today, which I have no doubt King would be supporting, white moderates play on the fears of the outside agitator and extremists, making discipleship into a kind of expedient pragmatism. What King understood is that fear, fear is the enemy of the moral life, and fear is stoked by the rhetoric of insider and outsider. King's message was aimed at all those who are more devoted to order than to justice. That is why anti-immigrant rhetoric is so dangerous in our time. It provides us all with a scapegoat for the problems that we have created but can now blame on others. In response to the president's crude remarks in the Oval Office about you-know-what whole countries, Brett Stevens, the most conservative columnist writing for the New York Times, penned a piece called Proud to Live in a Nation of Holers. It's terrific. His own paternal great-grandfather came from Moldova, the poorest country in Europe, escaping an anti-Semitic rampage that preceded the Holocaust. He came to New York and he labored as a carpenter in the Brooklyn Navy Yard for $8 a week. Stevens wrote, low skills, low wages, minimal English, lots of children, and probably not the best hygiene. That's half my pedigree. The other half consists of refugees. But I'm not alone, he continued. America is a nation of holers. It is an improbable yet wildly successful experiment in the transformation by means of hope, opportunity, and ambition of holers. Holers into doers, makers, thinkers, and givers. Are you of Irish descent? Italian, perhaps. Polish, maybe. Scottish, Chinese, 
Well, chances are your ancestors did not get on a boat because life in the old country was placid and prosperous and grandpa owned a bank. With few exceptions, Americans are the dregs of the wine, the chaff of the wheat. If you don't know this by now, it makes you wax in the ear. Donald Trump is the wax in the ear. Why does he think that some people make good refugees and others make bad ones? The answer, of course, is race. He wants more Norwegians. But here's the truth, the truth, that, that strange inconvenience that the president is so unfamiliar with. Most immigrants do not bring the dysfunction they are fleeing with them. They come to escape them and start a new life. This is the genius of America. Just ask Dorsa Darakshani, the international chess master from Iran who came to the US last year because, as she wrote in an op-ed piece for the Times, quote, the mullahs cared more about the scarf covering my hair than the brain underneath it. Vietnamese boat people did not bring fratricidal hatred with them to America. I know this because my son, Cass, dated the daughter of first-generation Vietnamese boat people, who are now both engineers at Tinker Air Force Base. They're among the hardest working, most accommodating, most generous, most patriotic people I've ever met. Soviet refuseniks did not bring a Soviet work ethic with them. They did not steal jobs. They filled jobs Americans wouldn't do, or they created new ones. They don't bring crime to cities. They drive out crime by starting businesses and families in shrinking cities or underserved neighborhoods. They don't undermine American culture. They feed, enrich, and reinvent it, not least through their educational ambitions for themselves and their children. This is true of most immigrants, Stevens writes, but perhaps more so of the so-called holers from sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africans have among the highest college completion rates of any immigrant group. As for Haitians, they have a higher labor participation rate than the overall workforce and a median household income that is robust by the standards of any developed nation. Why? Why? because immigrants self-select. They have a broader perspective. They know their luck. They want it more. The miraculous thing about America is mostly invisible to those who've known nothing else. They can't see it. To really see it, you must first rise up from a hole. The president has not, to say the least, risen from a hole, but he is sinking into one. We have a president, Stevens wrote, who is even more ignorant of America than he is of the rest of the world. Besides, his preference for more Norwegians is, is kind of humorous. I mean, it is and it isn't. It's based on race, of course, but the quote of the day comes from Maine Guy, an immigration historian at Columbia University. Listen. Obviously, he likes Norwegians because they're white, but he knows nothing about Norway, a country with a single-payer universal health care system and free college education. Why would anyone want to leave Norway for the US? 
To honor, to honor Dr. King, here's what we should do. First, consider joining the march tomorrow at 2 p.m. that launches from the corner of MLK Avenue and Northeast 20th Street. And in the year to come, we should remember that King wasn't looking for fans and wasn't a perfect man himself any more than Jesus was. This morning, all over this country, words will be spoken that will sound as if they're honoring Dr. King. Much of it will be whitewash. Whitewash. The latest issue of the New Yorker magazine, if you have not seen it, shows Martin Luther King Jr. on the cover kneeling on the sidelines of an NFL game with Colin Kaepernick. Remember, King was a Baptist minister reluctantly drafted into a movement he could not avoid because God had blessed him with that voice, a voice unlike any other. He knew the risks of speaking truth to power, and yet he knew that the greatest danger from, for all of us is to remain silent at a time like this, so let's not. Let's honor him by being radical truth-tellers in an age of profound deception and stolen elections. Let's tell the truth about everything, about our addictions, our illusions, even our dysfunctional families. But most of all, let's be honest about ourselves and our own denial when it comes to racism. Church is not about bake sales, bylaws, and worship as entertainment. It's about becoming disciples of Jesus. King reminded us that there was a time when the church was very powerful, a time when, quote, early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. We were once the outside agitators, he said, and the disturbers of the peace. Now we are the tax-subsidized servants of white, moderate mediocrity. To conclude on a personal note, I had just become captivated by the voice of Dr. King as a teenager, when at the age of 15 and on a fishing trip with my father, got the news that he'd been shot dead in Memphis, and I saw my father weep. Then, just two days later, what would have been, in my opinion, the best of all the Kennedy brothers and the next president, Bobby, was also shot dead and a darkness fell across the spring of 1968 that no one who was not alive in those days can fully appreciate. But that darkness has returned, and we're going to have to save ourselves. We will not do that by turning against one another, but by joining hands to remember what it was like when America was the last best hope of the world. It can be again. And in King's memory, we pledge to do everything we can to make it so. We are not morons. We are not morons, nor should we accept being represented by one. Just before he died, King addressed a crowd about his days in Birmingham and his battles with Bull Connor. He said, and then old Bull would say as we kept moving, turn on the fire hoses, turn the fire hoses on them. And they did turn them on. But what they didn't know was that we had a fire, we had a fire that no water could put out. That's what I want for this amazing church, to know that God is not done with us, not even with our white moderate souls. Until we say and then do 
what these times require of us, we must. Would the waters of our baptism, would that the waters of our baptism would make our commitment to resistance an unquenchable fire. To close, here is one of King's lesser known quotes. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. We will, Dr. King. We promise, we promise not to let the dream die. Sincerely, Mayflowers, white moderates. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.